0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. There is an outline on your bulletin, if you happen to grab one of those, covering Acts twenty-four, twenty-two to 27. We've left Paul, the Apostle Paul, on trial for three weeks now, stringing it out like the American justice system typically does, making it go on and on. When they officially finished this in one day 2,000 years ago. But we've seen the Apostle Paul, he's arrested, he's subjected to a trial in Caesarea before or really a Roman court through the governor, the Roman governor Felix. And so far we saw the, the prosecution and that was a contingent of Jews from Jerusalem who despised the Apostle Paul, wanted to snuff out his life. And it was spearheaded by the high priest who came with some of the elders and probably some of those Sadducees in the Sanhedrin who had already heard Paul's testimony just a few days before, and they didn't like what Paul had to say because he referred to the res- I believe in the resurrection, and that just made them as angry as could be, those Sadducees, the priests, because the Sadducees uh, did not believe in the resurrection. Uh, so they got very upset. They wanted to kill Paul, and so probably some of these that were bloodthirsty for Paul came with Ananias, 60 miles north up to uh, Caesarea there on the coast of the Mediterranean. And they had this trial and they presented their case short to the point, three main points. They hired a professional lawyer, Tertullus. As far as we know, he was not an eyewitness of anything that Paul did wrong, but he was hired for his expertise in Jewish law because he was Jewish. But also he knew the ins and outs of Roman law. And he was a, silver forked tongue individual. And just about everything he said in his allegations against the Apostle Paul were lies. But basically, he amounted a case with three main points or charges against the Apostle Paul just by way of review in that trial. Uh, The first one that he brought up was sedition. Thinking that would definitely get the attention of Felix, the Roman governor, because governors who ruled on behalf of Rome one of their main responsibilities was to keep the peace, to keep law and order and not allow any insurrections or tumults or uprisings at all. And so Tertullus, sharp lawyer, knew that that would be very interesting and very important to Festus. So that was his first charge against Paul, that Paul was guilty of sedition or treason. Uh, That's a political crime crime against the state, as in Rome, who ruled and had the authority. That was the first charge, sedition. And the charge was that wherever he goes, all over the world, he is stirring up Jews, the idea to turn them against Rome. So that's sedition. That's a political charge. That's treason. Uh, then his second charge was sectarianism. Sec, I mean, they literally, he uses the word sect. Which the Greek word is heresy. And, and Paul said, I, I didn't commit sectarianism. Sect. Uh, a, a faction. Creating a faction that goes against the crowd and they're usually a divisive, odd, troublesome, undermining faction. And Tertullus accused Paul of being a religious faction. Like a religious cult. He's not really Jewish. It's a spinoff of Judaism. He distorts the scripture, doesn't believe in the uh, Old Testament scriptures. And he started his own weird, divisive, crazy, kooky distortion of true Judaism, this sect, the sect of the Nazarenes. He's a sectarian. What does that mean? He's a cult leader. So the first charge of sedition was a crime against the state. The second charge of sectarianism was a crime against Israel, the Jews. He's not really a Jew. He's against the Jews. He's deviated from Jewish religion. So sedition, sectarianism. And then the third charge was sacrilege. He, he's defiled the temple. Sacrilege. So sedition was a, a crime against the state sectarianism was a crime against Israel. Sacrilege was a crime against God himself. Sacrilege, defiling the temple. That was one of the crimes that actually warranted the death penalty in that day. That was one of the crimes that actually the Romans would allow the Jews to prosecute and even implement the death penalty through stoning or whatever. So this was huge. He defiled... The temple, which he didn't, he, he didn't defile the temple. As a matter of fact, he did everything by the book, according to Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Prepared himself, purified himself seven days before he even went to the temple. Went there with four other purified Jews in accordance with the, the Old Testament Mosaic law. Did it by the book, went through the motions. Just the five men, they were all Jewish. There were no dirty, unclean Gentiles with him going into the inner court where only Jews could go. And the Jew, the Asiatic Jews who hated his guts and, no, and recognized him, they created a tumult and just made public accusations against Paul and, and cried and yelled, fire, the sky is falling. This man is blaspheming uh, the temple. He's uh, de- defiling our temple by bringing Gentiles in here, which is a total fabrication, total lie. And Paul, so that was the prosecution. It was a threefold allegation against Paul. All three of which, in the minds of the Jews, warranted the death penalty. And so Felix, the governor, he listens to this, and then he lets Paul uh, testify. So he had the prosecution, then the defense, and that's what last week Paul gave his defense, and he took them one by one, in, and in order. Uh, I've only been here 12 days. I haven't created insurrection throughout the Roman world. It takes more than 12 days, it takes about 12 years. Uh, he didn't say that, but he said, I've only been here 12 days. Uh, I'm not a sectarian. I'm not anti-Jewish. I don't oppose the Mosaic law. As a matter of fact, I believe in the Mosaic law. I believe actually in the whole thing, unlike these guys. I believe in the resurrection taught in the Old Testament. I believe in the coming of the Messiah, who's already come, just as the Old Testament teaches. I believe in Jesus, who died on the cross, just as Isaiah 53, Genesis 315, Psalm 22 predicted the Messiah would die on behalf of sin. I believe that. They don't. I am the true, fulfilled Jew. They're the ones who've deviated from Old Testament truth. That's in a nutshell of Paul's defense. So he defended himself every step of the way and then he just <laughs> point blank on the blasphemy charge in the temple. It's like, I didn't, I did not do that. That's always, that was a good reminder. When somebody falsely accuses you, when you're giving your defense, uh, just first, simply categorically, if you didn't do it, just admit you didn't do it. I did not do that. What is your defense? I did not do that. Tell the truth what they said, what they accused me of, I did not do that. That is untrue. That is a lie. And then if you can add more details and witnesses, that's great. And Paul turns it on them, puts them on trial and says, by the way, they're the the ones that accused me of all this were the Jews from Asia, and I don't see them in this courtroom. And you're all Jews making your case. You know, Deuteronomy 26 and other passages where it says, if you want to make a case, you need the testimony of two or three eyewitnesses. Otherwise, the case is to be thrown out. And the Asian Jews, they aren't here. You have no case. I arrest my case, and then Paul is done. So it's very short and to the point. And so now we look for the verdict. And that's where Felix is responsible. So that's why we have the title focusing on Felix today, verses 22 to 27, the rest of the chapter. Let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, Felix, actually, the title is called The corruption of Governor Felix. Kind of gives you a hint of what the text is going to say. Uh, Felix is in the title of the sermon because Felix is mentioned in just about every verse, verses 22 to 27. It is about him. He's under the microscope now, from God's point of view, through Luke. Luke may have been, we don't know if he was in the courtroom at the time, just listening as a bystander. If he was, he was an eyewitness of actually went on in that courtroom. If he wasn't in the room, we know that he was, Immediately with the Apostle Paul after this court. And no doubt, note he was taking notes, writing this down. Also led by the Holy Spirit. So what we have here is very accurate, very detailed, very specific. Through the Spirit of God, through Luke. The companion of Paul. And so the corruption of Governor Felix. So let's look at the verdict that Felix renders. After hearing both sides. By the way, being a judge. a mediator or an arbiter do not ever render a decision until you've heard both sides in a conflict we struggle with this all the time we are so prone as humans you hear somebody you know a friend or whoever talking here we all do this oh and this and they did this and they said this and they did this and can you believe they did and it's your friend you're like whoa how dare they the fact that you said how dare they means you've already made a verdict you've rendered a decision already No, uh, Proverbs is very clear. The book of Proverbs. You don't render a verdict until you've heard both sides. You need a testimony from both sides. That was clear in the Old Testament. So uh, God in his wisdom, knew human nature, trying to protect humans from false accusations and said, unless you have testimony of two to three witnesses, and unless you hear both sides, no verdict is to be rendered. So at least Governor Felix allowed two sides of the story to be told. At least and on that basis he should have made a decision uh he should have well he did make a decision but he didn't make the right decision but he was in a position to make the right decision uh, so a practical takeaway there is don't render decisions until you go both sides if you're a parent and you've got more than one child and one child is tattletaling to you about the other child do not cave do not give in do not render a verdict Okay, I want to hear the other side of the story, and I want everybody present. If you're trying to counsel married people, do not ever just listen to one spouse. That is unfair. Marriage counseling needs to involve both parties, and preferably right there. And you could extend into the church. One believer, that's not sufficient. Let's get both parties involved. And let's ask the both parties if they've even done step one of Matthew 18, 15 first before they're talking to anybody if they want to do it a biblical way. So just a practical takeaway there, a good reminder. And I think this is the only, just about the only thing that Governor Felix did right is he allowed a fair hearing on the part of both parties. So what was the verdict he rendered? Keeping in mind that before Felix heard testimony from both sides, we know that the commander, uh, Claudius Lysias, had written a letter, a a legal letter in writing, we saw it in the previous chapter, where the commander, the Chiliarch, the Roman authority in Jerusalem who was involved, who talked to Paul, who was there at the tumult, who was an eyewitness, who witnessed the Sanhedrin courtroom testimony, determined in the end, Paul, he is not guilty. He is not guilty to be in jail. He he's done nothing to be uh, worthy of being in jail, and he's done nothing worthy of punishment or death. In other words, he's innocent. He is not guilty. And he delivered that letter to Felix. Here's my rendering. Here's my perspective. So that should have been very significant from Felix's point of view because the Roman Chiliarch worked for him, represented Rome, and it was actually an eyewitness of what happened. And Felix admits this and knows this. It's hanging in the forefront of his mind because he mentions uh, Lysias Claudius at the, at the end when he's going to make a decision. Nevertheless, he doesn't make the right decision. So let's go ahead and look at why I call him corrupt, the corrupt governor, Felix. I, mean, I already talked about his personal character that showed why he was totally corrupt and how he ruled with an iron fist and was overly brutal with people, He already had a reputation like that of the Jews. They were, kind of feared him because of the way he treated them. Though we learn more about him as a leader, as a judge, as a man, his character. And really the, the darkness of his heart is exposed here. So let's go ahead and look at it. Three things about why Governor Felix was corrupt. Look at verse 22. So Paul is done uh, for the resurrection of the dead. I am on trial before you today. That's the end of verse 21. We didn't really get to talk a whole lot about that because Paul has said that twice now. He said that in the Sanhedrin. He says it here for the resurrection of the dead. I am in trial before you today. What does that mean? Well, really, that's one way of saying because I believe in Jesus Christ is why I am in trial today. Because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, left his gospel and his church and the risen Jesus commissioned me as an apostle on his behalf. And everywhere I go, I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because I submit to the king of kings, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. So that's what he means by resurrection. It's not just I believe in generic resurrection, that bodies will come out of the grave someday. That isn't what he's talking about. He believes in resurrection and all that that entails in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. Resurrection was taught in the Old Testament. Which is ironic that the Sadducees, who were leaders in Jerusalem, leaders of the religion of Judaism in the days of Jesus, as a matter of fact, the priesthood was composed of Sadducees. The religious elements of temple worship were Sadducees. And yet, we know they did not believe in the resurrection. Because we were told that by Luke when Paul was on trial. And Paul realized, oh, I've got Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. Boom, I will pit them against each other. I believe in the resurrection. And he did. So the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection, which means they would reject Jesus Christ as the professed risen Messiah who came back from the dead. They totally categorically rejected that truth. Jesus is not alive. He didn't rise. He's not the Messiah. And therefore, Paul, you are a false teacher. And you misrepresent Old Testament Judaism, and Mosaic Judaism. And they were the leaders of Israel. And they were total hypocrites. They, didn't, they weren't in good with the people like the Pharisees were, by the way. There were probably fewer Sadducees than Pharisees. We don't even know when the Sadducees originated. They're not in the Old Testament. So they arose at some point uh, from the book of Malachi to the book of Matthew. In that 400-year period, the Sadducee party arose somehow. As a sect, they, they were the true sect, the, the deviation from true religious religion. that was primarily political and friends with Rome. That's how they rose to power. If you look at the history of the Sadducees, which is hard to pinpoint, uh, some people think the etymology of the word Sadducee means the righteous ones. Can you imagine? We are the Sadducees. We are the righteous ones. And the Pharisees, you know what that means? The pure ones. Well, we are the pure ones. <laughs> what about you? Arrogant, religious, hard-hearted, prideful, pompous, phonies we are the right and these were the sadducees and so the sadducees kind of reached their climax in the days of jesus and they ruled the high priesthood so they had all the authority in the temple and it was these high priests eventually who put jesus on trial and commanded and had him executed they were responsible Uh, it was the high priest the sadducees who ultimately had peter and john arrested peter and john and the apostles beat commanded them not to preach anymore they were the ones and so now again it's the bloodthirsty sadducees trying to shut paul down and even have him killed the sadducees the sadducees who didn't believe in resurrection the sadducees at the end of the gospels at the end of jesus's ministry who questioned jesus publicly that they might cause him to stumble it says in the gospel of matthew when they ask him a question about the resurrection implying that they believe in the resurrection liars Jesus is teaching publicly during a feast day at the temple in front of the crowds and the multitudes. They are jealous. They want to undermine Jesus, make him look publicly like a buffoon so that the people won't follow him anymore because they're jealous for power. And so they think of a trick question to ask him, and they come up with a question about the resurrection. So, Jesus, we got a question about the resurrection. And then they quote from the Old Testament regarding marriage, uh, Moses. Moses said... That If a man is married and then he dies, his brother, if he has one, should take over his wife on his behalf. Well, we know a guy uh, who married and died. And then there were up to seven brothers and they were all marrying this woman as each brother died. Gets married, a brother dies, she marries the next brother. That brother dies, she marries the next brother. I would look at another family after like the third death, but anyway, she just kept marrying the same family. So here's a lady who had seven husbands in this life, and so their question is: So in the re- in the afterlife, in the resurrection, who will she be married to? Trick question. And and Jesus basically takes him to task uh, on two points regarding scripture. Have you not read? Have you not read? What an insult. Have you not read? Obviously, uh, they have read. They've, they've memorized the Pentateuch. Have you not read? Well, they had a wrong understanding of it. And then he, and then he says, um, you do not understand. So they distort scripture. And Jesus affirms the doctrine of the resurrection, even though they don't believe it. So that's an interaction he had with the Sadducees. And he tells, and he goes on to tell them that in the afterlife, in the resurrection, there's marriage nor, or people given in marriage. You won't be married to your spouse in heaven. Marriage is only for this life. Marriage is temporal only for this life. It is not in heaven. Contrary to what Mormon doctrine would tell us or even Islamic doctrine and many other, actually, false doctrines and worldviews, you won't be married in the next life to your spouse or any human being in the next life. That's what Jesus meant. There is no marriage or you're not given a marriage in the next life. Uh, There's only one marriage, and that is the marriage of the Lord Jesus Christ to his bride. And that is those whom he has saved over the ages. That's the only marriage. It's a supernatural heavenly marriage. And then he also said, and I know you Sadducees, you don't believe in the resurrection. You're lying to me now, pretending like you do. But have you not read? And you also don't understand the doctrine of resurrection is taught all over the Old Testament. For example, don't you remember when God said to Moses in in Exodus chapter three, I am God said, I am the God of Abraham and I am the God of Jacob. Or I am the God of Isaac and I I am the God of uh, Jacob. And Jesus said that is the doctrine of the resurrection. Now, if you read that going through Exodus 3 at face value, you might not think it's teaching resurrection there. How is that teaching the doctrine of the resurrection? When God said to Moses, I am not the God of the dead. I am the God of the living. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How is that teaching resurrection? Uh, Jesus' whole point is the verbs that God used there were all in the present tense. In 1400, B.C., when he's talking to Moses, on a human level, Abraham had already died and been buried and in the grave. And many religions' worldviews would think he's in, he went into non-existence. And God is saying, no, Abraham, I am the God of the living. Abraham, even though he's not around anymore, I am the God of Abraham. I am the living God. Abraham is still alive today, not on this earth, in heaven. Because there is resurrection after physical death. That is the doctrine of the re- absolutely amazing. So that was divine revelation on the behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest Bible teacher there ever was. Resurrection. Anyway, that was just to kind of highlight what total, utter hypocrites the Sadducees were, who do not believe in the resurrection. So when Paul says in twenty four twenty one, leading up to where we're going next, for the here's the truth for the resurrection of the dead, and specifically Jesus Christ is why I am on trial today. All right, Felix, hmm. Felix has heard about this Jesus. Felix ruled for four years in Samaria. Prior to ruling here in Caesarea, four years. In Samaria, remember what happened in Samaria before Felix got there? Philip, there was a, there was a revival in Samaria. Decades before where God sent Philip and boom. First of all, seeds were planted by Jesus in Samaria with the woman at the well. And when she went and told the entire community, I I think I just met the Messiah. It said the entire city came out to see him. Seeds had already been planted. They're watered by Philip. There was salvation in Samaria. There are plenty of believers in Samaria. The word is getting out. It's going around. And then Felix is assigned to that area. He is there for four years as the ruler on behalf of the uh, governor on behalf of Rome, and he became very familiar with the way, with Christianity, the way to heaven, the way, Jesus being the way, very familiar. So he began. He saw the nuances. Oh, wow, this Christianity thing isn't the same thing as Judaism. Wow, they don't get along. There are significant differences. And so he, he became aware of that. And even probably some of the beliefs and doctrines, at least at a superficial level, We know that he became familiar with Christianity because our text tells us that he did. So he's familiar with it. And then after four years in Samaria, then he moved to Caesarea. And decades before that, Peter brought the gospel in Acts chapter 10 to Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion who worked for Rome. So he was an authority in Caesarea and Cornelius got saved. And it said his whole household and all of his friends. There was a revival in Caesarea of Christianity. And the word got So there were believers. We know that when Paul came at the end of his third missionary journey, one of his first stops was in Caesarea on his way to Jerusalem. And it said he met the brethren, the believers in Caesarea right there. There was a church in Caesarea. Felix had been ruling there for five years. He has been in this area for nine years, rubbing shoulders, commiserating, trying to oversee and referee these Christians and these Jews. So he knows a lot. And so we'll pick up our text here. So point number one, Felix is a coward. He is a coward. What is his verdict? He had all the information that he needed. He was really put in that position by Rome, but he was put in that position of governor and judge by God himself, Romans 13. He's accountable to God for the information he has and the judgment that he makes. He is a coward because he perverts justice. He doesn't make the right ruling. He doesn't rule based on fact or honest testimony. We see that in verse 22 and 23. But so Paul says, I'm on trial for the resurrection. But but Felix, that's bad news. But Felix, Paul, truth teller. But Felix, but Felix, Felix, the liar, Felix, the corrupt one, Felix, the compromiser. But Felix. Having a more exact knowledge about the way there it is having an exact Paul, Luke is writing us to inform us. Uh, We can't pass Felix off and give him a pass based on ignorance well he didn't know enough he wasn't an eye no it says right there Luke tells us through the spirit he had an exact knowledge of the way he knows exactly what is going on with Christianity and Judaism and exactly what Paul is saying and exactly what their fallacious accusations against him are about Felix knows this having an exact a more exact knowledge about the way. So he knew more about Christianity than Ananias did. That's the implication. Who's in the courtroom. He knew more about Christianity than Tertullus. He knew more about Christianity than the elders who were accusing Paul that day. Which means he had all the requisite information that a judge needs to make a decision. But he doesn't. It gets worse. Having more exact knowledge about the way put them off. There it is. That's huge. Put them off. Who did he put off? He put Paul off. He put the prosecution off. He put justice off in two ways. Number one, how did he put Paul off? Well, he put Paul off by not making the right decision that he knew was true. Paul's not guilty. Uh, This is kind of an uh, intramural theological squabble between Paul's understanding of the Old Testament and the Jews, and that's not a crime. And therefore, he shouldn't be in jail. And he definitely doesn't deserve the death penalty. Felix knew that. But he put Paul off. You know what? He should have said. He knows he should have said, Paul, you know what? I agree with Lysias, Claudius. Uh, you shouldn't be in jail. Uh, you're not guilty. You can go free. He didn't do that. He put Paul off. He put him off. He refused to make the right decision. Put it off. Didn't make that decision. Kicked, kicked the can down the road. Procrastinated. He's not dealing with the issue. So he put Paul off. But he also put Ananias and the Jews off because he didn't render a decision to them either. He put them off by not saying, he not telling them, you know what? You don't have a case. You don't have any eyewitnesses. Uh, I'm going to throw this case out. He put them off. He didn't tell them that. He put them off by not telling them, well, I think you're right. And Paul's guilty. And here's what I'm going to do. He didn't do that either. He put it off. He didn't make a decision. His indecision was a decision. And his indecision was putting justice off, putting them off, Leaving them hanging and then lying about it. Okay, I'm not going to decide on this right now. As a matter of fact, uh, I'll take it a step further. I I need a little more info. I need to talk to the commander, the Roman commander that wrote me the letter and get more information about him because his name was invoked in the courtroom here, Lysias. So you know what? I'll bring Lysias down and talk to him and then I'll make a decision. Lie. He never did that. That's why that phrase is so specific. He put them off. Saying when Lysias... The Roman commander comes down. I will decide your case. That never happened. So he doesn't make it. He's indecisive. Put them off. Put them off. This reminded me of what is, if I were to ask you, what are the top main ingredients in a good leader, in a good leader? What, think in your mind. Okay, what are some attributes, characteristics about a good leader, something you want in A leader, whether it's um, maybe in your home, the dad, what are good characteristics about making him a good leader, Uh, your husband, if you're married, principal at a school, the mayor of your city, the governor of your state, it's a good leader, pastor of your church, elders of your church, the head of a ministry. What are the characteristics of a good leader? Well, here's what I thought. Uh, what makes for a good leader? I think it starts with how they think. It starts how they think. I didn't pull this out of thin air. Look at First uh, Timothy 3 real quick. First Timothy 3 gives qualifications of elders who are supposed to be leaders in the local church. And these, by the way, one of these qualifications is actually uh, also assigned to how women, godly women, are supposed to be in Titus 2 and also how older godly men who aren't elders are supposed to be. The same word is a qualification for an elder. First uh, Timothy 3, uh, trustworthy statement that if any man, male, aspires to be the office of overseer, pastor, presbyter, elder, shepherd, it's all the same, it's a fine work, that's a good desire, but he needs to be qualified. Uh, verse 2, an overseer, elder, pastor, shepherd needs to be uh, qualified in light of the following qualifications. He needs to be, number one, above reproach. Number two, a one-woman man. He can't be a polygamist. He can't be cheating on his wife. He needs to be faithful to his wife if he's married. And if he's single, he is morally, sexually pure. That's what that means. And then the next, so that one is how he conducts himself Uh and how he lives but the next two qualifications are how he thinks two of them and they complement each other nasb says he needs to be temperate and prudent temperate is metaphorical meaning sober or so, sober minded it has to do how he thinks he is so uh, sober in how he thinks in other words he is fully rational in how he thinks fully rational What does that mean? He is objective in how he thinks. He is not swayed by outside forces or even inside forces like he's not swayed by emotion. That's exactly what it's talking about. He is not swayed by he doesn't get confused or clouded by his own emotions. That is very important for a leader. You got to you got to fight against that, cut against that and be objective. And this is what this is talking about. This is how he thinks he is temperate. He is sober minded. He, He is fully rational. He is objective. He has clear thinking. He cuts through. What doesn't matter? So this, this is a discipline of the mind. And then the next word, prudent, that's even more specifically regarding the brain. How you think, but also how you render decisions and that you are decisive. So I think that those are some of the key ingredients to a good leader, no matter what occupation or field they serve, is it's how they think. They think clearly objectively, big picture. They can assess everything. They can observe from 30,000 feet. They can also see close up in the details at the micro and the macro level. They are balanced in their assessment. They are not influenced by emotion. They're not influenced by the fear of man. They are not swayed by money or flattery. They're not swayed by elevating themselves up and securing power in their position as a leader. They're not swayed by the influence of other people in an illegitimate and wrong way in terms of how they assess and think. that That is tremendously important. They think clearly, but also they are decisive about their decision-making. they got all the facts, they've got necessary data, then they make a decision. They are decisive. Not only are they decisive in making decisions, they are confident in their decision. They don't do a double-take. Oops, I shouldn't have said that. Whoa, what about, oh, I don't know if that's going to work. That's called double-mindedness, and Scripture is clear in James 1 about being double-minded. You can't be double-minded. That's a spiritually immature man. So you're a clear thinker, you're objective in your thinking, you collect all the data, both sides, all the information, fully informed, thinking it through, diagnosing it properly, then you, and then you're decisive about it. Some people are decisive, very decisive, but with the wrong agenda. They're self-centered in their decision, or being decisiveness, elevating themselves up. So, Add to that, there has to be a moral quality. You have to have integrity in your decisiveness. It's in accordance with truth. It's how it has to be. And you can be a good thinker, clear thinker. You can, you can come up with the right diagnosis, and then you can come up with the proper diagnosis in your mind, and you want to give the verdict. But then you can be a coward and not make the decision. That happens all the time, even among Christian leaders. Oh, I know I should do that. Oh, yeah, I should have done that. But, oh, I would have hurt their feelings. Oh, I would have made them uncomfortable. Oh, I don't know what they would think about me. Oh, the repercussions. Oh, what might happen? Oh, they might argue with each other. Oh, that happens all the time. So a good leader is going to make a proper think about it objectively, get all the data, assess it properly, make a proper diagnosis and then actually be decisive about the right thing to do and how to proceed. And not only that, he's actually going to follow it through with some courage, trusting God with the results. That's a leader. And that's what temperate and prudent mean that the man of God needs to be. And his decisions are hopefully, they are in accordance with truth. They are prayerful in accordance with biblical truth, trusting God. And let the chips fall wherever they may. Well, that was not, going back to Acts 20, that was not Felix. He was the opposite of everything I just described. He probably, actually, he probably had clarity about the situation. He was a sharp cookie. He didn't become a governor for no reason. He was able to smooth talk somebody to get there. He was passionate about something. It wasn't the truth, but he was passionate about something. That's, he was aspiring. He had an agenda. He got there in this authoritative position, but he lacked integrity and, and morality and everything else so that he couldn't follow through with courage on the right to stand. He has no courage. We're going to see that. Even more, he is a total coward. So he put him off. And then he, he says, well, he makes an excuse. This is a lie. When Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. That's not true. Never happened. Verse 23. And he gave orders to the centurion, uh, the Roman soldier there, for him to be kept. in. Co- so, yeah, keep Paul in jail. It's, it's indefinite. It's open-ended. Keep Paul in jail for how long? Just, well, just keep him locked up. That's not justice. That's a distortion. That's a perversion of just prostitution of justice. Gave orders to centurion. Yeah, keep him in jail. Uh, but give him some freedom. See, have, Pacifying his conscience. Yeah, his friends can come see him. And so Luke and many of Paul's friends did come visit him for two years. Paul is left to rot in this prison by Felix for two years. Unbelievable have some freedom. Uh yeah, don't prevent any of his friends from ministering ministering to him, ministering to him. Do you know, during this two-year period where Paul was just sitting in that prison in Caesarea in the literally in the house, the palace Herod's palace in the house of Felix for two years. So here's Felix and Drusilla and all of his other maids and women on the side and worldly, wild, drunken immoral living going on, throwing parties in his house and his palace. Down below all the while is the Apostle Paul. Like a caged animal for two entire years. What was Paul doing? We, we know that Paul did not write any New Testament epistle during this time. Two years. That is hard to believe in light of the fact of this juggernaut he's been for all these years on the first second and third missionary journey where he's not stopping for nothing he's just go 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 planting churches training people from one city to the next writing epistles and then all of a sudden you got a two-year period where he is doing absolutely nothing writing no letters we don't know anything about it whatsoever what was he doing i have no idea although it does say this is interesting maybe providential that at the end of it it says um His friends from ministering to, his friends can come and minister to him. That's probably exactly what happened. Paul needed to be refreshed. He had a two year respite designed by God. Not of his choosing, but designed by God. He had some freedoms. He had friends that could visit him, encourage him, minister to him. It's time for somebody to minister to Paul after all he's done. He's just a human like us. So that could just be the grace of God. So Felix is a coward going on. What else is Felix? Well, he gets convicted. He actually does. His conscience isn't totally seared. Verse 24 and 25. But some days later, so he puts Paul there in prison to rot. A few days go by. We don't know. Days could be weeks for all we know. Felix comes back to Paul. Oh, yeah, that guy. He lives downstairs. Is that the dog bark? Oh, no, that's Paul. Yeah, I forgot. He's caged up downstairs. Probably go give him a visit. Here, honey, you come with me. Here, Drusilla. Drusilla. I can only imagine what she looked like. Felix arrived with Drusilla. Who was Drusilla? That was his illegitimate wife. I think like his third wife, Drusilla. The daughter, Drusilla was the daughter of Agrippa I. Agrippa I was the Herod in Acts chapter 12 that had James murdered and tried to kill Peter. So that was Herod. He was vicious acts 12 this is his daughter drusilla drusilla's sister is bernice we'll see her in acts 25 so felix comes oh by the way drusilla became felix's wife illegitimately because when she was either between 15 to 19 uh felix saw her he was married she was married to another man he stole her from that man so some days later He arrived with Drusilla. We know that she was Jewish. Uh, His wife, who was a Jewess. There it is. So she's interested in this Jewish. So she finds out about Paul. Oh, what was that case about? Oh, Paul. the. Oh, I've heard of him. Yeah, the Jewish drew up with Gamaliel and used to kill. And now he's like a Christian and the Jews. Really? Whoa, this is very interesting. Honey, can I meet this Paul man? I've heard so much about him. Really, I'd like to. What does he think about Judaism? Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess. There it is, sent for Paul. So Paul comes and meets Felix and Drusilla, and he heard, uh, Felix heard Paul speak about what? About faith, not faith, it's the faith. So he listens to Paul, and we know what Paul does, he's in preaching mode. Doesn't have anything else to do, he's in preaching mode. He's got a lot to say. And it says, he heard Paul speak about the faith, not faith, the faith. What is that? Christianity, the whole doctrine, everything about it. And Paul had a lot to say. And he delineated the fullness of the gospel and Christianity and probably the differences between uh, what those Jews believed and what he believed as a full Jew who believed in the Messiah of the Old Testament. And so basically Paul is preaching to Felix. You asked for it. You called me. You want to talk to me and interchange with me. Uh, here's what I'm all about. I'm about the resurrection, which means I'm all about Jesus. And here's what Jesus did. And here's who Jesus is. And here's what he said. And here's what he said about you and humanity and all of us. And that we are sinful and wicked and separated from God. And it came from Adam and Eve and their first sin. And there's only one way to be saved. And it is only through Christ and his death. But we must repent of our sin. And if we don't, we will suffer consequences. And God is the judge of the earth. Jesus is the judge of the earth. God the Father has delegated all judgment to the Son. The father judges no man at the end of the age, every human soul must face the Lord Jesus Christ and he will render a verdict, either guilty or not guilty. If you're guilty, you will be assigned to eternal hell forever. If you are innocent, and that just means believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and asking him to be your savior and forgive you of your sin based on his perfect life and his sacrificial death, and you believe in that, then he will save you, forgive you all of your sin. And when you die, you will be and go with God forever for all eternity what he preached but there was a day coming there was accountability supernatural accountability from the creator himself now that resonated with felix's conscience felix had a conscience he was made in the image of god whenever someone speaks truth from the bible it intersects with the human conscience and it does something it creates an an action and the people react accordingly they either resist it and get very upset or it resonates with their soul oh wow i believe that and so Paul is speaking truth from the Bible. It's piercing his conscience with the help of the Holy Spirit, who is convicting of sin, righteousness and judgment, because that is his job 24 seven. And that's what he's doing with Felix. And this is the interchange that's going on. And he's and Drusilla is getting to hear this amazing truth in its fullness from the apostle Paul himself, the second greatest Bible teacher there ever was. Heard him speak about faith, the faith in Jesus Christ. The New King James gets it right. The faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 25. And as he was discussing righteousness, that's that God is holy, he cannot tolerate sin, he hates sin, he must punish sin, and he will. No, and he has, through the death of Christ. And if you sin, you're accountable for your sin. And you have only one way to be atoned for it. And it's through the risen Christ. So he heard about sin and his accountability. And man, he was full of sin, this Felix guy. He was a compromiser in every area of his life. No wonder his conscience was bothering him. So he talked about righteousness, the righteousness of God, and self-control. That Man, that was probably the main weakness that Felix had, a total lack of self-control. He lacked self-control in his passions, in his morality, in his thinking with materialism. He was money hungry. He was hungry for power. This guy lacked Total self-control. Self-control comes from one place. That's the spirit of God, according to Galatians 5. He didn't have the spirit of God. He had no self-control whatsoever. He was just given over to sin. That's what that means. And also, Paul talked about the judgment to come. Jesus Christ is going to judge you, Felix. Look at Felix's response, verse 20. Felix became frightened. He was more than convicted. He was frightened. The word of God just pierced his soul. Is it good that he got frightened? Absolutely. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This was his opportunity. He should have bowed the knee. Paul, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He did not do that. He put it off. He looked for a human solution. He hardened his heart and became recalcitrant and hardened all the more to his demise and ultimate doom. Missed opportunity. Felix became frightened and said, go away, go away, go away. Not only did he put justice off in the courtroom after hearing all the testimonies in the trial, he put them off, put justice off. He puts off salvation. He puts off forgiveness of sin. He puts off heaven. He puts off Jesus. He puts off eternity with the Father. Procrastination. It's frightening. Go away. Go away for the present. And when I find time, I will summon you. Well, the, no, that's not true. Put it off. You don't respond. If you're, if you're not a Christian and you keep hearing the truth of God over and over and over again and you keep saying, no, yeah, maybe someday. No, yeah, maybe someday. No, yeah, I'm not ready for that. That's very dangerous. Don't do that. Today is the day of salvation, says the book of Hebrews. Today is the day of salvation, Paul said to the Corinthians. Go away. So Felix gets convicted from the truth of the word of God and the gospel. And then finally, uh, number three, Felix caves to compromise, pleasing men, compromise. Uh, verse 26, at the same time, two he was hoping, gosh, here's, okay, so two years is going on. And every once in a while, Felix says, yeah, I think I'll bring Paul in. I, I need some entertainment. Cable's down. So... uh Well, let's bring Paul in. Get a laugh. So apparently he made this a pattern over the course of two years. And by putting the truth off over and over again, again, he's searing his conscience. So rejecting the truth just becomes easier and easier. And that's exactly what he's doing. At the same time, too, he was hoping. So while he's meeting with Paul with all these meetings, he was hoping. Why does he keep meeting with Paul, by the way? Well, he's got an illegitimate motive. He was hoping that money would be given by him by Paul. He is, he's hoping that Paul would bribe him. Wow, man, I've been here for a month and you, you didn't say I was guilty of anything. Can, um, hey, I'll give you 50 bucks. Can I get out of here? Wow, I've been here for six months. What's the deal? Lysias hasn't been here. When are we going to have that follow up appeal? Oh, I, I got uh 2,000 bucks left over from the collection that I brought. So my friends brought. Luke brought me some money here. This is what Felix is hoping Paul's going to do. What is Felix doing? Felix is assuming that Paul is just like any other human. This is what humans do. Sinful, wicked human that just comes naturally. Bribery. It's all about me. Here, take a buck. Forget justice. Do it behind the scenes, under the table, whatever it is. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We don't need to tell anybody. Forget ethics, forget integrity, forget the truth. This is how humans operate. It's how everybody does it. So no doubt, this is probably how Felix got to his position in the first place. He bought his position there. He's used to this. And this, wow, how, when is this poll guy gonna kick in like everybody else and start forking over the cash? What's taking this guy so long? I've got a reputation. People know about me. I can be bought so he's waiting for the money Paul to give him therefore he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him he, so he really wasn't interested about the gospel or theology or forgiveness of sin and judgment he he got over that he wasn't frightened anymore we're having these conversations for money 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 meanwhile he is being a total thug and brutal, and slaughtering people, in particular the Jews, and tumults wherever he found them, unjustly so, too. A lot of innocent people he had crucified. And Caesar's hearing about that was like, man, this guy's out of control. I need to pull the plug on this guy. On Felix. That's what that what that's eventually what happened to him. Uh, verse 27, after two years had passed, two years. Corrupt governor in charge. It, it, it is disgusting when people have authority over certain reigns of domain and they are corrupt to the core. And you cry out to God, why, God, why is that person in charge? They're so immoral, so corrupt, so evil, hurting people. And they got all the power. God, God knows God doesn't allow anybody to get to that position without him putting them there in his divine mind. He knows why. Felix served a purpose of God while he was in that position. But after two years passed, Felix was uh, succeeded by... So Nero said, that's it, you're gone. Felix, I'm removing you. And he did, and he put Festus in his place. And the historical record has... Zero to say about anything good that Felix ever did. For Rome and especially for Palestine or the Jews. Utterly bankrupt. Oh, good. Man, finally they're going to put some new governor in there. Maybe that'll solve problems. Porcius Festus. Not really. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. There it is. So he was an appeaser. He uh, was a coward. He wouldn't make a decision. He wouldn't render justice. He was totally immoral. He was uh, driven by the fear of man and elevating his own and securing his own power in the position that he had and appeasing the Jews. He feared the Jews because he knew they were going to retaliate. They'd been retaliating for a long period of time. And so he wanted to pacify the Jews who did have a lot of power, especially Ananias, the high priest, and the Jews that ruled there. And so to appease them, that's why he left. Why did he leave Paul in prison for two years? To appease the Jews. Why did he give Paul a little bit of freedom? To appease Paul. So he didn't render true. uh Half of justice is distorted justice. A little bit of justice is perverted justice. A modicum of justice is no justice at all. It is injustice. And that typified Felix. Well, God is sovereign. He is in charge. He's in control. Notice that we're going to see from the text. Paul is not panicked in any of this. He is a human. He's trusting God the best that he can. He's encouraged by his friends. He's praying to God. Uh, he's being ministered to for his last dash to the finish line once he gets out of here in about fifty nine sixty A.D., and he will. And he's going to take one more missionary trip and write some of the best books in the New Testament. God is not done with Paul yet, so we'll pick up with him next week. Right now, we have the privilege to go into communion, so let's do that. And as I was thinking about communion, uh, turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter five. Because while the the elements are being distributed and you're waiting, as soon as you get that cup that has the the bread and the juice in it, representing Jesus' body and his shed blood, you can meditate in your own heart in light of first John chapter five. Sorry, first John chapter one. First John chapter one that says this in verse I'll start at verse eight. But emphasize verse 9, if we as Christians say that we have no sin, so a Christian should never say they don't have any sin because that's a lie. We all have sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we've got to be honest as we evaluate ourselves. Uh, But verse 9, meditate in your own heart as you get the cup right here. Uh, Verse 9, if we confess our sins, literally when we confess our sins, or we should be confessing our sins on a regular basis. That's what John is trying to tell us. As Christians, uh, we should have the, dis- the regular, really daily discipline of evaluating ourselves and sin in our life. Now, I actually have talked to Christians and know Christians who don't do this on a regular basis. When was the last time you thought about and evaluated your own heart and sin in your life? Uh, wow, it's been a while. I can't remember. That's not good. Uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 right here. This needs to be a discipline that is continual, daily, ongoing in your life. I would say every single day. Just take a little inventory. God, how am I doing before you? Holy Spirit, search my heart, search my mind Uh, for things I know, the things I don't know. That's how David prayed. Expose it, show it to me so that I can confess it and be right with you. That's what John is saying here when you confess your sin. So we need to continually be confessing our sin, evaluating ourselves. And when we do and we throw that into God's lap, God, here, I was short of uh, temper and I was angry. I got angry and that was sinful. God, forgive me. Or I didn't tell the whole truth in that scenario. I I panicked in the moment and wasn't good spontaneously there as I was caught off guard and I kind of told a half-truth, which is a lie, (laughs) which is sinful. God, forgive me. So if you're honest, you can probably find a sin that you've committed very recently. And this is a good thing. That's what communion is for, actually, the Lord's table. It's a time to think to evaluate to th- Paul literally says evaluate yourself examine yourself how short we all fall ongoing sin in our life and then we are reminded tangibly with this juice and this bread that Jesus died for those sins and we have ongoing continual forgiveness because of his work and his grace that that is time to that is reason to celebrate eucharist eucharist which is in corinthians Speaking of the Lord's table, Eucharist means to give thanks. Thanksgiving. Communion is a time of thanksgiving. It's not morbid introspection for the Christian. We, we are rejoicing that we have total ongoing forgiveness of sin, and we need to tell Jesus that. Father, Jesus thank, and Father, forgive me for my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross on behalf of my sins. And God, here's the promise. If we confess our sins continually to God because of Jesus, God is faithful. He's going to do what he said. And He's righteous. He's going to do the right thing to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, meaning He's going to continually in an ongoing manner keep forgiving us of sin, which is cleansing us, which is really talking about cleansing and purifying our conscience. So this is a a beautiful work that God does in an ongoing way on the conscience. So your conscience isn't weighing you down or bothering you or guilt hanging you over you and many times that can create depression and wrong thinking and rob your joy. So this is the answer right here. Ongoing, honest, forthright, continual confession of very specific sin to the Father, asking His forgiveness, and He is faithful. He will forgive. He will continue to cleanse. And you will be able to live a life with a clear, joyful conscience. It's a beautiful thing. So let's go ahead and take a minute right now eyes closed, and confess your sins to the Father and thank Him for the forgiveness you have in Christ. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.